it's like buses, right? You you wait a hundred years for a gravitational wave detection, and then three come along at once. <laughs> <laughs> So that we can squeeze information into it. Uh, my name is Beth, and I'm a PhD student studying particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. My name is Alistair, and I'm also a PhD student studying analytical chemistry at Queen's University. And my name is Sienna. I am a PhD candidate at McGill University studying neuroscience. And that makes us your PhD 3-2-B! To be. to be. Yes. Um, to be or not to be, that is the question. Definitely to be, or at least I hope. <laughs> <laughs> We're all hoping. <laughs> <laughs> if all goes well, definitely to be. Okay, guys. Do you know what we're talking about today? Gravity. I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I have a little jingle. I have a little jingle to... to talk about what we're talking about today um okay <clears throat> let me just get my singing voice um <laughs> we're gonna be surfing gravitational waves <laughs> that was cute i like that. I, like it. Wow. I thought about it i thought about it in the shower this morning and then also <laughs> thought about how we might get like copyright letters and then i thought wow imagine if our podcast got like takedown <laughs> record labels that's how you know that you is how you know right you like it. could you imagine somebody relevant enough listening to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> if you feel that you would like to send us a dmca takedown yeah, notice, uh, you can email us at phd <laughs> thank you we'd love to hear from you <laughs> we would love it also don't forget to rate and subscribe <laughs> yes <laughs> do all of the things um, while you're listening to the dulcet tones of your PhD 3 to be talking about gravitational waves. So what do you guys know about gravitational waves? I'm going to start with you, Alistair. Okay, as I understand it, gravity is a fundamental force. Good start. That causes people to stay on this spinning rock that is traveling very fast through our universe. Also a good start. And... Things that have a very, very, very large mass on the scale of planets um, have gravity or exert gravity. I'm not quite sure how gravity really plays into mass. I know there's equations and stuff, but... Um, yeah, there's equations and stuff. There's yeah. always equations and stuff in physics. And so, so, so gravitational waves are kind of like if you had a, a piece of nylon stretched over like a trampoline, or like a trampoline, think of a trampoline, mm -hmm. and you take a bowling ball and put it on the trampoline. Yeah the trampoline like dips down into mm -hmm. okay. where the bowling yeah. ball is and if you were to bounce that uh bowling ball it would create kind of waves that go out uh on the trampoline that's that's my thought of what gravitational waves are wow i think that's a really good visual explanation and i have nothing to add i think it is a really good explanation so like the classic i'm sure there are problems with this like i've think I've read that there are issues <laughs> with this analogy, but I don't know what they are, so I can't tell you. 
Um, but it is a common analogy, and I think quite a nice mm -hmm. one, to think mm -hmm. about what space-time is. To think of it like Alistair's trampoline, or I would use maybe a bed sheet that's a bit less springy, and therefore a bit like more mm. easily mm -hmm. deformed, I guess. Um, and if you put something that's massive in the middle of that bed sheet or trampoline, then you're going to create a dip in it. That's, and that's mm -hmm. the idea of what mass does. Um, so it's interesting that you said that it works on very massive objects, Alistair. Um, Would you like me to clarify? <laughs> and that's not wrong. Okay. Gravity works on anything that has mass. However, it becomes relevant to humans. Like, we yes. can perceive gravity when the mass is super massive, like a planet. You're exactly right that it works on all objects of mass. And you're also right that we only perceive it on the scale mm -hmm. of, like, planetary objects. The point right. is that gravity is a very weak force. And that mm -hmm. is of concern to physicists because we haven't yet been able to unite it with the other three fundamental forces of nature and those are mm. the weak and the strong yeah and the electromagnetic yeah points to sienna <laughs> wow so those are all like we've already found some way of unifying those at certain energies and that's all very complicated i'm not going to talk about it but gravity is sitting on its own feeling all left out oh like it's not gonna be the main topic of what we're talking about today but it i think it will come up in one of the sections of the interview that i did speaking of which now would be a good time to introduce the fact that to help me along today's journey of discovery um i had uh i interviewed a researcher um dr pia astone from INFN, the um, Italian National Institute of Nuclear Physics. Cool. And um, she works on LIGO and Virgo, mm -hmm. um, which are the two main gravitational wave experiments currently in operation on the Earth. And, well, I think I will just let her introduce herself. <laughs> Um, do you want to start off by introducing yourself? Okay, you know my name, Piastone. I work in the physics department of the Rome University, La Sapienza, and I am an INFN, which is the Italian Institute of Nuclear Physics a member. And presently, I am the coordinator of the Virgo Rome group, and I am part of the LIGO Virgo collaboration since many years because I started my activities. In gravitational wave searches uh, many years ago when I was very young, it was the year 1988, uh, something like this. <laughs> so interferometers, no, LIGO or Virgo, yeah. were, okay, still not, uh, okay, clearly uh, the detectors we were using at that time, there were these resonant bar detectors. Uh, with very low sensitivity compared to these interferometers. But in any case, it was very interesting. Also at that time, very, very old times, but it was uh, interesting and we did a lot of work in preparation 
of uh, all waters yeah. that happened in the past years. So my main activity is uh, researching gravitational uh, wave. You sneak, Beth. <laughs> I'm a sneak. Is this is this interferometry episode number two? Yeah, this is interferometry part two. I'm so sorry, guys. I didn't uh, remember. I well, it's not that I didn't remember that this wasn't interferometry part two. I deliberately did this as interferometry part two. I just kind of didn't think that everyone would put two and two together. So if you haven't listened to our interferometry episode from season one, you um, can go back and listen to that. But I don't yes. think it's a prerequisite. No, we have no prerequisites in this podcast. Um, no, it isn't a prerequisite, which means that um, I should have thought to do this earlier. But now let's have your guys's, or is it you guys's? Uses <laughs> guys's. <laughs> let's have the recaps of you guys on what interferometry is. Sienna, take it away. <laughs> oh, come on. Um, oof. Yeah, uh, interferometry is the measuring of interference of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good start. Thanks. Um, Alistair, have you got anything? Um, yeah. I, uh, it, interferometry is using lasers to detect gravitational waves and the detectors in like the shape of an L yeah right and two lasers are shot out and bounced off of mirrors and come back yeah um I said did, did you have more to add before I jump not in? not really okay so between you both you're right the only <sighs> the only thing that wasn't right was that Alice when you said that using lasers to detect gravitational waves that is a use for interferometers and interferometry, but if you go back and listen to interferometry part one, then you'll um, learn about how interferometers were used in the 19th century to prove that the speed of light is mm -hmm. a constant, or more that, 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 that light doesn't travel through any kind of... Substance. Even though it's yeah. a wave, it doesn't seem to have a medium. Right, it doesn't mm -hmm. have a medium that it travels through. Or, mm -hmm. like, better is that it sort of creates its own medium, essentially. It just travels. Sorry, can you just say her name again? Pia Astone. Astone? Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, so the description of inter interferometry was pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that you have two arms arranged in an L shape and you send a beam of light down both of the arms at once. So you send it into a beam splitter, mm -hmm. um, so you, which uh, sends half of the light down one arm and one half of the light down the arm that's at right angles to it. And then they bounce back off mirrors and they interfere and then they get sent to a detector, or they get sent to a detector and they, then they interfere in the detector. And then changes in that interference pattern um, will tell you something about um, the changing optical path length of the light, which essentially means how long it has been since the 
light was produced to when it landed at the detector, which in turn, if light ca- travels at a constant speed, mm-hmm. means that it's traveled a different distance. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So before we get to the main part of my interview with Dr. Astone, I wanted to give a little bit of background to what gravitational waves are Mm -hmm. and how they came Mm -hmm. to be theorized because you guys know that i love this stuff yeah um yeah so we'll start in the in the future and then we'll go back into the past well we'll start (laughs) in the past but then go further back into the past okay Um, so in 2015 you guys probably heard about the um discovery of gravitational waves right probably peripherally yeah yeah um peripherally is fine because you're not physicists so i don't expect you to keep up with the um physics news of the day i was also i think like 20 in 2015 and i was in sweden yeah it was while we were in sweden so like we're all in sweden together you probably had other things to (laughs) occupy your mind um the the result was published in 2016 so in preparation for this episode i went back to read the a discovery paper from the 2015 mm-hmm. event um, and they say until the Chapel Hill conference in 1957 there was a significant debate about the physical reality of gravitational waves mm-hmm. which was something that I didn't know um, mm. because like what the science history that gets fed down to inexperts like me is that Einstein uh, among the many things that he theorized were gravitational waves and mm-hmm. therefore they were sort of accepted as true. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They just weren't discovered. But that turns okay. out not to be the case. It turns out that he wasn't even the first person to predict the idea of gravitational waves. Oh. In 1893, Heaviside, who some people might have heard of if they know of Heaviside's function, no. Um, I wouldn't look into it. It's not very interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> Cross that off my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> Heaviside used the analogy of the inverse square law of electromagnetism to hypothesize gravitational waves. What that means is that if you look at the equations for electromagnetism, then they look quite mm-hmm. similar to the equations for gravitation, or at least the Newtonian um, equation for gravitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So electromagnetism, the, the strength of the electromagnetic force drops as one over R squared from a point charge, just like gravity drops as one over R squared from a point mass. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So gravi- so Heaviside said to himself, well, these things look similar. Mm-hmm. We know that electromagnetic waves exist. That's what we call light. Yeah. So I'm going to say, why shouldn't gravitational waves exist? Cool. I love the logic. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a simple, decent clear. bit of thinking. Yeah. And this was in 1890 something? 93. Wow. 1893. That was before I was born. It yeah. Was, <laughs> funnily enough, before I was born, too. Uh huh. <laughs> um, I was even... alive. I'm ancient. Yes. Alistair is that ageless. That does make you quite old. It's even before my sister was born, and she's <laughs> older than me. Poincaré <laughs> um, also hypothesized the idea of gravitational waves for other reasons. Okay. And 
it apparently Einstein was at first skeptical of Poincaré's idea. Okay. Um, but he eventually found a set of approximations to general relativity that led him to find three different types of gravitational waves that he thought this theory predicted. Okay. I think the reason I really wanted to point this out is that obviously we all know that Einstein was an intelligent human being and did a lot of groundbreaking work and is famous for doing that work, and rightly so. Yeah. But, like, the whole standing on the shoulders of giants thing, um, which I think was a Newtonian saying, not Einstein, but anyway. Um, but, like, you can't... You couldn't have Einstein doing all of his incredible work if you hadn't had all of the other people that had come before him. That's what I'm trying to say. And even, like, at the same time um, as him, there were other people doing also very yeah. relevant, helpful work. Or, like, just before him. Like, overlapping times, I guess. Yeah, that's true. So Einstein... Einstein was skeptical about gravitational waves first. Yeah. But then... Um, but then he did some maths. <laughs> but then he did his own bit of maths, yeah. yep. Right, with general relativity. So general relativity is taking special relativity, which is talking about things going near the speed of light, and applying yep. it to acceleration and deceleration. Basically, yeah. Okay. So back to Einstein... Uh, as I said, he found a set of approximations that led to three different types of gravitational waves, which were called longitudinal, longitudinal, transverse longitudinal, and transverse transverse. Okay. So this was 1916 mm-hmm. that he published this. Yeah. Uh, then in 1922, Arthur Eddington showed that two of the types of gravitational waves were just um, artifacts of the coordinate system that Einstein had used. So they basically didn't really exist. Okay. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring it up is because it's quite a funny anecdote. Apparently they would, so they could be made to propagate at any speed uh, that you wanted, depending on how you chose the coordinate system. Mm-hmm. So he joked that they propagated at the speed of thought. <laughs> 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 Which I quite like. Anyway. That's good. Um, so having dismissed two out of the three types, yeah. doubt was cast on the third type, which apparently is the transverse-transverse type of gravitational waves, Interesting. Um, which would travel at the speed of light. But people continued to work on it, and progress was made until this famous 1957 conference that I mentioned. Okay. Uh, so they had this big conference, and uh, yeah, they kind of solidified the... Um, existence of gravitational waves or like the theoretical existence of them the fact that the theory would predict that they existed so in 1974 this system of um, pulsars was discovered and over the next decade um, measurements of the orbital period of the system showed that the two pulsars were getting closer together Mm -hmm. which meant that they were losing energy and by studying that loss of energy that was shown to be the same rate like energy was being lost at the same rate Mm -hmm. as was predicted by the gravitational waves theory Mm. so essentially like this energy was going into producing gravitational waves um and we could see the loss of it indirectly 
giving us evidence of gravitational waves. Cool. So by the 70s, so this effect was discovered over about a decade after this 1974 discovery. So in the 1970s, this was still at the early stages of um, thinking about, or at least um, having evidence for gravitational waves. It's only just over 10 years since this Chapel Hill conference where they decided that gravitational waves were really real and really interesting. But a guy called Joseph Weber um, decided to build some detectors, um, which Dr. Astone will tell us more about. The, the idea is that uh, these uh, so big uh, masses, aluminium uh, masses, uh, something of the order of 2.5 uh, tons, okay, um, when they can capture the energy when a gravitational wave passes in the detector and they produce, I don't know if you can see my hand, some vibrations. Yeah. So the bar, to imagine this heavy aluminum bar, when the gravitational wave hits the bar, then there is some release of energy and then there is some uh, vibrations. Mm -hmm. So there were clearly transducer attached to the, to the bar. And then you can translate this, the motion of the, okay, from the transducer into, okay, an electric signal and so on. And he constructed more than one uh, resonant bars in different places in the States, because it was clear also to him at that time that in order to confirm a signal which was so weak and of extraterrestrial origin, clearly, uh, he needed to have coincidences between different detectors. Basically, in these experiments, uh, where uh, she was explaining how the resonant bars work, and they were looking for supernovae, which I think you guys probably know what they are. The death of a star? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And what happens? Uh, there's a lot of stuff released. <laughs> energy yeah i mean these are pretty good explanations so when a really big star dies runs out of fuel then mm. it ends up going supernova which basically means that it like explodes into um a whole load of stuff and gives out a whole load of stuff and would presumably give out a whole load of gravitational waves as well mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's what they were looking for because um they didn't yet know about the existence or abundance of um, so many black holes that we have or about the the mass distribution of them mm -hmm. so they sort of didn't know what to look for um, in terms of black holes they looked for supernovae but the problem is that supernovae compared to black holes will give you a significantly less strong signal mm -hmm. yeah. um, and we still, with our modern techniques, haven't, haven't seen any gravitational wave signatures from supernovae. Mm. Um, but with, with these bars, so the, when she was saying that he um, created several of these different experiments around the place, the idea is to have results from each of them, that if you, if you find a result in one of these bars, and you find a res similar result in another one, then you can say, oh, look, they look the same. 
it's very unlikely to just be noise or a coincidence or mm-hmm. something random, but it's much more likely to be an actual signal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did find signals. He found things that looked to him, um, or they, the people looking for them, found things that looked like gravitational wave signals, but eventually uh, it was understood that they weren't actually gravitational wave signals. Mm-hmm. So in this clip, Dr. Astoni explains why um, the, or essentially how the mistakes came to be understood as mistakes and not as real signals. But then in the end, uh, no one was able to repeat again the results of, uh, from Joe Weber, and someone also understood the reason, so why he uh, found uh, coincidences. The problem was in the connection uh, at that time, computers uh, and the connection between the computers and these signals was not so perfect as it is now. Okay, so the method uh, he used to synchronize the, the data of the different detectors introduced some uh, spurious peaks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he interpreted these peaks uh, as gravitational wave signals. So the peaks were really there, but introduced by the, the, the method uh, used to, uh, to store the data. So eventually after like the, uh, the fashion of building these resonant bar detectors, interferometers started to be built. And these are the detectors that we were talking about at the beginning. And uh, so there are two mm-hmm. big, as far as I understand, there are two really big interferometry gravitational wave experiments currently online, currently operating and taking data. Um, and they are LIGO and Virgo. So LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And Virgo isn't an acronym, but it's just a name. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, um, they're both big interferometers. So LIGO split into two. They have two different detectors, um, mm-hmm. in two different parts of the US. Um, and Virgo is, uh, in Italy, not mm-hmm. too far from Pisa. Um, nice. and so the... Good thing about having lots of different detectors is, like we said before, if you find a, a signal in each of them, it's much less likely to be random noise. So I'm going to play you a clip about uh, how Virgo came to be. With uh, Alberto Giazzotto and Alain Brier uh, from French, uh, started to collaborate to construct uh, Virgo. And so, okay, it, it took many years. Uh, because, uh, okay, from the first, uh, say, experiments from Ray Weiss and then from oh, Alberto Giazzotto to the first detection, uh, no, almost 30, 40 years passed, no? because the first detection was in the year 2015. Virgo uh, started the data taking in the first, say, preliminary configuration, but started the first data taking in the year 2003. Oh, okay. Right. So 
uh, almost 15 years of data yeah. without, the without seeing anything, <laughs> but uh, working to improve the sensitivity. Yeah, right. Both, uh, continuous, uh, say, run interruptions in order to improve the sensitivity, mm -hmm. so use uh, the noise uh, effects, uh, which are of different nature, uh, different levels. Mm -hmm. In the end, uh, resulted in the very good sensitivities, uh, which we have now, and which uh, in the year 2015 uh, led to the first detection, uh, followed by many other detections of the same kind, almost of the same kind. Wow. Cool. Um, yeah, so you can get an idea of how long, I mean, just for Virgo to be not even created, not even built, but from starting mm -hmm. to take data to um the 2015 discovery which like which virgo wasn't even involved in um it just so happened that i think virgo wasn't taking data at the time wait so um, the 2015 discovery wasn't done it was was it confirmed with virgo no the 20 so the 2015 discovery was done with ligo uh -huh. um and because ligo has two detectors okay they could confirm each other's uh, signal. But since, right. Virgo has also been able to detect them. Yeah, since then, mm. we've seen plenty of different gravitational wave signals. They've all come, and we'll get onto this in a bit, about um, the types of signals that we have been able to see and the types of signals we haven't yet been able to see. Um, but so far, all of the signals that we've seen have come from binary complex object coalescences, I think is how they're known as the, in the trade. AKA celestial object mergers. <laughs> yeah, but like really compact objects, so very yeah, dense objects, holes. meaning black holes or neutron stars. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, exactly. We've been talking all of this time about gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. And it got to this part in the interview before I managed to get the courage up to ask actually what was a gravitational wave and how they were produced, okay. um, which is obviously important. Um, <laughs> Especially for our podcast on gravitational waves. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Dr. Astana gave me a very good explanation of how gravitational waves are produced. Um, actually, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was exactly how do gravitational waves get produced? Okay, the point is that gravitational waves are produced every time you have some non-perfectly symmetric movement of the matter. If you put a ball perfectly symmetric in the water no? and you rotate it, you don't produce anything. But if it is not a ball... If it's not perfectly symmetric, but it has some uh, deformations, okay? And if you mm -hmm. rotate it, you see that you produce, you know, waves, yeah. even in the water. That's a great explanation. Yeah, it is a really good explanation, isn't it? Um, and it goes back a little bit to what you were saying right in the very beginning, Alistair, about the trampoline and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think water is um, a, a much better medium to think about because it's, it's waves. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and it's a much easier, like, um, analogy to visualize, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
are gravitational waves produced from the rotation of celestial objects? Um, I think it's any anti-symmetrical movement. Yeah, actually, okay, that's what she said. Like, any, any anti-symmetrical thing in, move, in motion. Yeah, exactly. Um, not anti-symmetrical, asymmetrical movement. Um, Einstein created a thought experiment mm. um, to try and show the kind of the kind of strength of a signal that you would see from any movement on Earth. For example, if I do this, I am producing gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. The point is that they are very, very weak. Just to give you an, an example, Einstein, before deciding, oh, this is something which is not important, probably neglected, did uh, say a Gedanken experiment. So Einstein said, imagine a, a, a 1,000 kilos rotor. Okay, so if you make uh, okay, this big rotor rotate so fast to the maximum frequency before it is broken, you can produce gravitational waves which at a distance of one meter, so very close, okay, yeah. the rotor, have an amplitude of uh, a dimensional amplitude, so the deformation of one meter is 10 to the minus 35. So 10 to the minus 35, this number, is the strain, mm -hmm. essentially, that would be caused by these waves. And what it means is that the distance um, that you're measuring, so the, the point of gravitational waves is that they as they move through matter, they literally change the different the distance between, like between things. So they like stretch and compress. What? Space time. Mm -hmm. Cool. So so gravitational waves okay. stretch and compress space time, and the fraction by which they do it is this strain fraction. Mm. Um, and so if you have mm. this rotor. Uh, that weighs a thousand kilos and you spin it until you can't mm. spin it any faster then the amplitude of the the, the relatively mm. the relative amplitude of the signal so the the amount by which space is changed distance is changed is 10 to the minus 35 very small very very small mm -hmm. very very small mm -hmm. um yeah so gravitational waves that come from black holes are much, much bigger. Um, they have much bigger amplitude. Mm -hmm. But the amplitude decays over the distance between where they're produced and where we detect them. Mm -hmm. So in 2015, yeah. the 2015 detection, the, the strain detected on Earth was... 10 to the minus 21 which mm -hmm. I, i'm about to play a clip okay. from uh dr astone which explains it much better um but like 10 to the minus 21 is still very very small mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's 14 orders yeah. of magnitude above 10 to the minus 35. right yeah the, the reason why we use gravitational waves to study the universe is that in the universe 
you can have big masses, no? For example, the, the, the first black holes from which we have observed the gravitational waves, masses of the order of 50 solar masses mm -hmm. colliding. Okay, so two uh, 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 masses of the order of 20, 30, 40, 50 solar masses orbiting, reaching a velocity which is uh, of the order of half the, the velocity of the light, something yeah. like this. These are the numbers. Okay, when they merge, okay, they produce a gravitational wave which is so huge that uh, even if the distance, uh, for example, in that case, the distance was, uh, uh, okay, it was 1.5 uh, million uh, uh, light years, okay, so something, uh, uh, billion, sorry, something very far, the, the, the amplitude observed on Earth was 10 to the minus 21. Okay. Okay, so and consider that the, the amplitude decreases with the distance. Okay, okay. so after having traveling, traveling, yeah, yeah. Uh, the distance, so, so, the, the amplitude on Earth is 10 to the minus 21, which is small, but much larger than 10 to the minus 35, which yeah. is the maximum which you can do on Earth. So yeah, I guess so like that's a thousand maximum. kilogram rotor zipping around super fast would be like the maximum you could produce on Earth? I don't know whether this is like a uh, so solid theoretical limit or whether it's like mm -hmm. essentially saying like, good luck trying to find something that's gonna find, that's gonna produce Right, because what, what we observed in 2015 was kind of almost the ideal situation of these two supermassive things coming together and yeah. producing so much, so many gravitational waves. Yeah. And right. it was very, very small mm -hmm. observed on Earth. And so, I, I mean, it was it was larger than Einstein predicted, but like still quite small, 10 to the 9 minus 21. And so like we'd have to basically be sitting right beside a black hole to see anything better and or a binary black hole system. And... Um, yeah, like it's not it's not smaller than Einstein predicted in the sense of like Einstein's 10 to the minus 35 is a different thought experiment, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. Like to get a stronger signal, at least from this particular object, you'd have to go much closer to it. Like, uh... mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it makes me think I wonder what it would be like. I mean, it's happened light years in the past, right? But I wonder what it would be like to be near that black hole system when they merge. Because yeah. if gravitational yeah. waves stretch space-time, compress and stretch space-time, mm -hmm. like, I'm just kind of thinking, you know when you go to the pool and they have the wave machine yeah. and you're, like, riding the waves and it's so much fun? Yeah. What would it be like to go near that system and get... Whoa, stretched and squashed. Probably very fun, Alistair. It'd probably also be very fun. On yeah, par I'm with just the wave pool, like, for sure. You know, humans of the future, amusement parks of the future, you can go to the binary black hole system. The gravitational wave pool. The gravitational wave pool! <laughs> I, like, really wouldn't advise it, but, um... Uh, if you want to create Magnetic that, doctor's Alistair, not responsible can... for any squishing or stretching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair, you can create it and go and test it if you want. So the 2015 discovery was very, very small, but was probably the best we'll get. Yeah, basically. And I haven't, like, I wasn't able to 
um, sort of really dive into looking at all of the other discoveries that have may- been made since then, but we have seen a lot of different events of this nature. So like 50 or upwards or events of either black holes or neutron stars merging um, in these mm-hmm. uh, compact binary object coalescences. And I ha- like I did talk to her, and we'll come on to it a bit later, about um, all of the engineering challenges that have gone into and continue to be important for the detection of these things. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you think about trying to find differences in distance of order 10 to the minus 21 like that's mm-hmm. very difficult i mean i don't know how good you you guys is um spatial resolution is but if you tried to tell if you tried to get me to estimate a different a distance to an accuracy of 50 centimeters <laughs> I might struggle. <laughs> like, if you're like, is this a meter well, away from you or is it a meter away and a half away from you? I'd struggle. Yeah, I'm, no, I think that's pretty impressive um, yeah. resolution. Yeah, I'm also quite bad with, with distance uh, measuring too, but uh, isn't, like, a human hair's width a few microns? And microns are, like, 10 mm-hmm. to the minus yeah. 6. So yeah. we're talking, like, exactly. small, 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 small changes in... So, so far, everything that we have seen, all of the events that we've seen, have been from compact binary object coalescences. So, the, like, merging of these really, or certainly the, like, combinations of uh, very dense objects. Um, And these Mm -hmm. are what are called transient signals, because, like, if you consider the original uh, 2015 detection, it was two black holes that were spiraling around each other, getting faster and faster and faster, and then eventually combining into one. And so that happens, I mean, it happens on the scale of I don't know how long, but certainly the bit that we could see happened on the scale of seconds. If you compare that, so um, uh, Dr. Astone, when we were on the Zoom call together, her background, hopefully I'll get a picture of it to post to our social media, um, her background was of the crab pulsar uh but the idea is that the, these pulsars that pulsars um would produce if they have an asymmetry in them they would produce gravitational waves just by their spinning motion pulsars are so compact that they become extremely smooth on the surface so the the gravitational forces are so strong that like everything is being pulled in like really evenly so you don't have everest on a a pulsar as far as i understand Mm. the surface is very 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 smooth yeah exactly yeah um so but if they do have some degree of asymmetry on their surface so if they have one bit that is slightly sticking out compared to the other side Mm -hmm. then in theory they would produce uh, gravitational waves but like all of the times so they would be continuous signals um, that you'd be looking looking for oh yeah. I see as opposed to the transient of this event of the two black holes merging mm. yeah, yeah exactly so I asked Dr. Estoni how you'd go about detecting these signals above some background level 
Because if they're there all the time, my question was, how do you know that they're, that, like, whatever you see in your detector is coming from that and is not something else or nothing? Mm. Um, and this is what she had to say. Continuous means that it's something sinusoidal. Okay. But yep. in practice, it is not sinusoidal because there is the Doppler effect. Right. Because yep. consider that the source is always there, okay, and the earth moves. Okay? Yeah. So uh, uh, the signal which we have at the detector is a sinusoidal signal plus a Doppler modulation, which is daily modulation and annual modulation. Okay. Plus a frequency which we call the frequency um, a, a variation due to the fact that if the signal, the, the source emits gravitational waves, it loses energy. And right. so the rotation, the, 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 the frequency uh, decreases. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it is not a perfect sinusoidal signal. It has do two Doppler, different Doppler modulations, one daily, annual, plus a spin down, that is a, f a, a, a frequency reduction due to the um, emission of gravitational waves. In particular, this is my job, because my, I was the data analysis coordinator, so I'm clearly interested in all the signals, no? in all the aspects yeah. of the, the search, okay, obviously. But what I really do in my everyday life for gravitational waves mm -hmm. is trying to look for this kind of signals. What's a binary pulsar? Pulsars are neutron stars that um, rotate really, really quickly and produce streams of light from their poles, mm -hmm. their magnetic poles. As the neutron star spins and its poles come, like are either facing directly towards you or facing away from you, the amount of that light coming out of the pole that you can see pulses, which is why they're called pulsars. Oh. This is what I wanted to highlight. Pulsars were detected first by Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who is a great woman in science. And um, mm. a binary pulsar is a system of two pulsars that are orbiting each other. It's really interesting to think about that the Earth is spinning every day and it's going around the sun every year. And what you're measuring is getting weaker yeah. and weaker and weaker as it spins or as it gives off gravitational yeah. waves. So like, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a lot right. to take into account. It is, it is, and that's like the that's why the theorists who study these things and make the models are so intelligent because they have to uh, take a lot of things into account. But it makes sense that that's how you distinguish it from background because it isn't like it's continuous. Sure, it's always mm. there but it's not always constant, which was um, my concern. But yeah, so basically um, how mm -hmm. discoveries get made is that theorists make models. They like input a load of parameters into their calculations and they say if 
an object of this nature existed at this distance and was go- undergoing this kind of movement, then this is the mm. effect that you would see on Earth. Um, and then you can line that up with your signal and see whether it matches or not. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so, as far as I understand... So it's like playing a really, really complex fig- physics matching game where you turn over the card and you go, okay, this is what we'd expect from our simulations and... No, not a match. Okay, and this is what we'd expect from our simulations. And yeah. Oh, it's a match! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> like in the 2015 case, for example, um, they saw a signal which... I think looked to them fairly clearly as if it had come from a binary black hole merger, but they didn't know what the correct characteristics of the mm-hmm. binary black holes or anything were. So they had to sort of tweak their, their mm-hmm. models and stuff and try and find a model that fitted their mm-hmm. data best. And so Dr. Ostone said that this is what she does, is she basically tries to distinguish everything from the background and yeah i mean looking for continuous signals she explained um is a very long process like for these transient signals you get a couple of seconds worth of data and you determine that there was an event based off that for these continuous signals you have to integrate over years worth of Mm -hmm. data so before i was mentioning about the engineering challenges that have had to be Mm -hmm. overcome and that will have to be overcome to um, discover gravitational waves in the first place and to continue our understanding of them. And so I asked Dr. Astorni what the principal engineering challenges were and she gave me this answer. There is the low frequency part, which is dominated by seismic noise. Mm -hmm. Then you have... So uh, uh, something of, uh, we cannot uh, go down one hertz because the seismic noise is too too, too strong. Then up to 10, 20 hertz, uh, the the instrument is dominated by seismic noise. Mm-hmm. Then you have a thermal noise up to say one kilohertz, and then you have shot noise. Okay, which is due to the uh, quantum <laughs> nature of the light, okay, uh, uh, which increases at higher frequencies. I am simplifying because clearly yeah. are yeah. these are the, 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 the main points. And uh, uh, in order to reduce seismic noise, uh, there was a very important contribution of clearly engineers and uh, okay, also physicists, okay, many people expert in technologies <laughs> because uh, these mirrors are attached to towers with a length of 10 meters uh, forming uh, say an inverted pendulum so that if the uh, the top okay moves because yep. Imagine that the, the, okay, the, the top of this tower is clearly attached to something, so to the building. Okay? Yeah. So if there is some movement of, of that, this moves. And you want that the mirror in the other is, is, is stay still. And, and this is something which is very, very important. Yeah. Consider that without this design, so the engineering design of this tower, 
the INFN, who was in Italy the, 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 the first uh, funding agency for the, uh, Virgo, okay, mm -hmm. uh, would have not uh, uh, given any money <laughs> for Virgo, okay. And then also say vacuum, we have uh, this uh, three or four kilometers uh, arms uh, are clearly in vacuum because the light of the laser should not meet anything, no? Because if, even if there is some dust okay, inside, mm -hmm. then this would move, no? The, the, the laser light. Yeah by much more than the final 10 to the minus 21 or even less, which we want to measure. So there is a lot, uh, yes, of engineering. In fact... Wow. So just like, it's incredible yeah. that they were able to engineer anything to detect yeah. gravitational waves on Earth, given how many interfering yeah. things there are. It's so interesting to me that like, okay, you can't yeah. use very low-frequency lasers because of seismic interference. Mid-frequency, mm -hmm. it's you have thermal issues, and then at high-frequency, you actually have issues with the laser itself. I think it's so not like... the frequency mm -hmm. of the laser, if I understand correctly. It's the frequency of the signal oh, okay. that you're trying to detect. Um, Sorry, yeah. But okay, yeah, that, no, that like, sense. there are a lot of... Um, and those are only... So, like, she mentioned some of the types of... of interference that you can get um the types mm. of noise that you can get imagine imagine not wanting interference in interferometry <laughs> <laughs> you don't want anything to interfere with your interference measurement. i think it's i think it's also interesting yeah. and i'm sure you kind of set it up this way that we've talked about the kind of history of um the detection like with the the metal uh, yeah uh, the resonant bars the resonant bars and how yeah. there were interferences or like issues with the detection they thought they had seen things that they didn't actually see uh, yeah. because of the just the detection technology at the time and yeah. now we have LIGO and Virgo 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 um, which uh, are better but still have limitations and yeah. and now we're moving to these other ones that you know are incorporating cryogenics and, and yeah. other yeah. Um, moving yeah. underground like I think it's really cool the evolution. Yeah. so first of all CAGRA is the I think the next, if I'm correct, it should be the next gravitational wave interferometer to come online. Mm -hmm. And it's based mm -hmm. in Kamioka, which we mentioned in the Neutrinos episode. Is that in Italy? It's in Japan. Oh, in Japan. Yeah. Okay. Very famous for a lot of neutrino discoveries and a lot of neutrino science that, that comes out of there. Um, and they're using cryogenics, which is like essentially super cooling things, but making, making things really, really cold. And that is to mm -hmm. help with the thermal noise to stop things from moving about just yeah. because of the amount of heat that they have in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, it's so mind boggling to think that you get to the point where literally just the movement of the atoms in your mirror and the things that are holding your mirrors up is mm -hmm. a factor in how good your resolution is going to be yeah the other thing that she was talking about the inverted pendulum um that's so important is to combat the seismic noise mm -hmm. so you can imagine that if mm -hmm. you have your mirror hung from the top of a building yeah and that building is connected to the earth yeah so if you have an earthquake come through mm -hmm. of any size at all you know 
strong one or a little one, mm-hmm. that building's going to shake a bit. Yeah. And if that building is shaking differently from how your laser is being produced, mm-hmm. then obviously you're going to get a difference in distance between them due to um, seismic activity, due to the tectonic plates and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you need to eliminate that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So what they have done, and maybe I'll try and find a, a video for um, our social media and stuff, but they have essentially hung the mirror from several different weights between the top of the building and the mirror itself. So essentially each of those little weights or big weights becomes an inverted pendulum in itself, meaning that like in a normal pendulum, it's fixed at the top Mm -hmm. and the bottom is free to sway, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in this way, the free end is fixed Mm -hmm. while the top is moving. The bit where it's it's fixed onto the building is allowed to Mm. move, but the the free end is staying still. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I I got in in contact with Dr. Astoni because, because I watched her give a lecture back when you could still go to pubs and stuff in like 2019 Mm -hmm. and I remember when I went to that talk she um she had like a demonstration of a weight on a string was probably like a a, what you guys would call an eraser what I would call a rubber um I think or some kind of weight anyway on on a string and she like showed that you can like move it around and it will move Whereas if you have, like, several of them all attached to each other mm-hmm. and then you move it around at the top, then the bottom ends up moving a lot less. So if you have, like, on one string, you have a bunch of weights at different lengths. Yeah. If you shake the yeah. top, the mass, the yeah. first mass down from your shaking is going to absorb some of that motion, but then the one below that is going to absorb less... And less and less. And less. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's the idea. This is the idea of the inverted. Um, Interesting. The other thing that um, I should say is that she mentions shot noise in this um, in this clip, which I looked up and I didn't fully understand. But it's about the quantum nature of photons themselves, mm. um, and how that can produce um, discrepancies in your uh, interference pattern and stuff. Yeah. Which again, like, it's mind blowing that that's the that's the level of that your resolution is at that you have to like counter for like photons. The quantum, yeah, the quantum nature of yeah, photons. it's like the quantum nature of photons, the vibration of atoms, and the movement of the Earth, like tectonic plates, yeah. like just yeah. such a scale. Well, all of these different yeah, scales, and then you're observing yeah. stuff that is you know so 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 far away and so 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 massive yeah. and like yeah yeah billions of light years away and so incredibly dense um okay there are still a couple more clips to play you guys Mm -hmm. so um i asked her about um the the 2015 signal and how um we were able to interpret that how you were able to go from seeing a a signal in your detector to knowing where it came Mm. from let me say that for that particular signal, it was not so complicated mm-hmm. because the, 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 the signal 
uh, as features which are modeled quite perfectly, in particular if they are black holes. Because uh, when the two uh, do merge, okay, imagine yeah. this is the movement, and we know, by we, I, I don't mean myself because I am an experim experimental, okay, I'm not a te theoretical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but pe people who do numerical relativity, for example, they are able to perfectly uh, simulate the movement of, uh, okay, these masses. Uh, and uh, you, you can easily understand that, okay, they are like this, okay, they lose energy. And so they come closer and closer and closer. And the frequency emitted, the frequency of the uh, wave emitted, no? Uh, increases because they come closer and increases with the law which is perfectly known okay so we know exactly what it, it should happen and the uh, particular combination of the masses which is called the, the chirp mass okay which is uh, a particular combination of uh, mass of the, the, the two ob object mm. defines perfectly the frequency variation so by following the path of the, uh, the, um, the frequency variations, okay, you have an, the, an exact information on the, uh, on the um, chirp mass, which is the combination of the two. Then you know the final frequency, because in the end they merge. And mm -hmm. by combining the, the, this information, you can also have the information on the total mass of the, the, the system and the amplitude of the wave which you receive gives a perfect information of the distance. In fact, the systems are also standard, can be used as standard candles. Mm -hmm. There is all, only, uh, say, some uh, problem due to the fact that also the inclination of the orbit respect to the Earth uh, reduces the amplitude which we measure. Okay, but from this exact, it's an, a perfect signature. And so the, the, the frequency variation gives you the exact information on the masses, but also more. For example, we were also able uh, to um, confirm clearly with some uh, uh, error in the sense, uh, not because any measure contains <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. uncertainty, that uh, give um, the gravity, if in case the graviton exists, because the graviton is not a concept yeah. of Einstein, okay? Yeah. In case it exists, so the mass is smaller than a very, very small value compatible with zero. Right. And so, that the, the gravitational wave measured just with that, okay, one signal mm -hmm. confirmed the uh, travel at the velocity of light. Because in case the graviton had some masses, yeah. there is a frequency variation in this movement okay. with a given signature, which can even uh, give you the information on the fact that the, the travel velocity was different than the velocity of light. Right. So in the case of these signals, even if you don't use general relativity, but just the model which comes from two bodies, okay, orbiting yeah. and then colliding, 
just with sim this simple information, with simple model, okay, you can uh, measure the total mass, the chirp mass, and then the two masses. And the, from the amplitude, you can measure the distance. So there were completely no problems. That's really, so that's, that's really neat that they can use kind of without using general relativity. Mm -hmm. um, they can yeah or understand where the signal it's from. amazing yeah, like all of the features of the signal relate to features mm -hmm. of the producer of the signal and it makes sense it makes sense that, that would be the yeah. case and it makes sense that that would be how you would go about reconstructing um the event that caused the signal um but it's so mm -hmm. interesting to understand how they do it yeah, and in that clip she mentions the gravitron, which I think, if I understand it correctly, is a theoretical particle yep. that w carries gravity. Like, if if you think about how a photon can be a particle or a wave and is light, um, or, like, you know, is analogous to light, it yeah. is light, whatever, um, a gravitron is a particle that we haven't seen, yeah. but it's theoretical, and it would ride these gravitational waves yeah. in the way that light has waves and it gravity. Yeah, it's the analogy. It's I'm, I'm making the analogy between light and gravity. <laughs> yeah, um, with some very okay, fun yeah. hand gestures. Yes, yes. Um, it's called a graviton, not a gravitron. But oh, uh, right, a gravitron is is the experiment thing, isn't it? Or I'm thinking of a synchrotron. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, I yeah, a synchrotron is an experiment thing. Is a particle accelerator. Anyway. Um, yes, that is essentially what a graviton is or would be if it existed. Um, and the important thing, uh, the relationship between the mass and the speed of light that she was um, sort of taking for granted is that according to Einstein's theory of special relativity, anything that is massless has to always travel at the speed of light. And mm. anything that has mass can never travel at the speed of light. And so mm -hmm. um, understanding that to within the experimental uncertainties, we have observed that gravitational waves travel at the speed of light means that if a graviton exists and if gravitational waves are carried by this graviton or produced by it or have some relationship to it, then the graviton would have to have such small mass that we haven't been able to detect it. So it's, yeah. for all yeah. intents and purposes, at the moment, we can consider it to be zero. Yeah, right. So the next clip is about um, the modeling process for the event that was observed in 2015. When we started the first run in September 2015 of our detectors, you know, with the new improved sensitivity, mm -hmm. uh, at that time, uh, the, the fact that black holes, stellar black holes of masses of the order of 30 solar masses uh, did exist, and also there were so many, was mm -hmm. not known. Mm -hmm. So in our templates, uh, we did not uh, uh, do the search 
for uh, this kind of masses. So for the merger of two black holes of 30, 40, 50 solar masses. Mm -hmm. We were looking for smaller masses because from uh, EM observations, uh, okay, it was clear that uh, stellar black holes uh, did have masses smaller than these values. So our uh, analysis done with these templates, okay, did not work because the masses which we were using were not the masses associated to the event. How then we were able and why we were able to find the event so rapidly? Because we were also looking for supernova explosion. In that case, we don't know the model. So mm -hmm. we run the so-called, say, unmodeled searches to look for the unknown, mm -hmm. for something for which we don't have a model. And one of these pipelines called the coherent wave burst, and uh, Sergei Klimenko is in the University of Florida, Florida he said the father of this uh, mm -hmm. pipeline, okay? Uh, was running and looking for signals uh, probably from supernova explosions without uh, a clear uh, model. And they observed uh, something, a signal with the frequency evolution compatible with the frequency evolution of the two compact objects. Okay, but then that frequency evolution did not match the right masses. And so we went back, applied the right templates with the right masses, and we saw the signal. Mm -hmm. clearly. Cool. I think I remember hearing about that when it was like first revealed that this was, they weren't looking yeah. for this signal. So it was luck that they still happened to find it in their data because somebody else was looking for signals that were sort of more yeah. random. So it's a combination of the luck of um, seeing something you weren't expecting and the work yeah. of trying to use all of your tools and everything that you know to, to understand what, what it was once it had been seen. The next clip is about um, how we want to use gravitational waves in physics in the future. And this goes back to the multi-messenger astronomy stuff. And multi-messenger mm. astronomy essentially is the idea that you can look at the same objects using various different tools and techniques. Mm -hmm. So we already obviously use light of many different wavelengths to look at the same objects. Yeah. We look in optical, we look in infrared, we look in UV, we look in x-rays, all of these different things. Mm -hmm. um, and we get more information about an object by looking at it in different ways. And the future mm -hmm. is really this multi-messenger astronomy stuff, which would be using both light and neutrinos and gravitational waves and everything else, like all of the other techniques that we can find that would be available to us mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. look at the same objects and analyze them in different ways. Mm -hmm. Cool. General relativity. Because uh, we know no, that uh, the uh, physics in general no, works that, okay, as you, uh, you have a theory, no? Newtonian theory, the Newton uh, gravity works mm -hmm. perfectly on Earth, mm -hmm. no? And yeah. it also works 
quite perfectly to explain uh, no, how we orbit around the sun. Yeah, yeah. Very minor problems. Right. No? <laughs> okay. So it's also, so it works. But then if you have, uh, say, stronger uh, examples of gravity, like mm -hmm. black holes or Newton's theory, yeah. you cannot apply Newton, which does not mean that Newton is wrong. No? Simply the scale of validity of Newton, the Newtonian theory is limited, say, to our solar system, to, mm -hmm. okay, okay, to some systems. Then we have the theory of Einstein. But we know, that the, we know for sure that at some point there will be, okay, another theory, okay, which will be la, la, the, the, the gravity, uh, Einstein gravity theory at the level of, to which we are able to measure now, but uh, will probably be different because we are even today not able to understand why quantum gravity, okay, is a model which, okay, presently does not work. We don't have a real yeah. gravity model. While we know that, okay, we are able to have a good quantum theory, no, for all the rest yeah. of the forces. Yeah. Okay, so at some point, uh, there should be something where, uh, I don't know, general relativity will need to, to change. And mm -hmm. at, at that point, we will learn something more, which we probably don't know now. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it is sure because uh, I was saying before, no, that we are trying to measure the mass of the graviton, but this is mm -hmm. not in the general relativity of Einstein. So even now we are trying to do no, something more. Yeah. Even yeah. so, we expect that probably at the inside the black hole, probably general relativity, as we so conceive, will not work, which is thing which, okay, uh, so, so we have uh, uh, astrophysics, we have cosmology, we have nuclear physics to test, dark matter, which is a very important yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, item now, okay, and uh, we have, of, in the end, we know that at the beginning, all the forces were just one, okay? Mm -hmm. So the fact that gravity is so different from uh, all the other forces which we know yeah. is something which we need uh, not to be solved. Cool. Yeah, so she's talking in this clip about um, where gravitational waves will take us in the future. And she talks in in the clip about replacing general relativity with the with the next theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important point as well that um, uh, she raises about Newtonian physics not being wrong. It's just that it works at a different like it's an approximation essentially, and it works really well for us on this planet mm -hmm. it works pretty well for most of the planets mm -hmm. but at some scales yeah. it stops working and the same is presumably true with general relativity mm -hmm. that it's a big improvement mm -hmm. on newtonian physics but it still leaves some unanswered questions yeah and as i understand it that's kind of what everyone's mm -hmm. all physicists are kind of working towards is trying to find a unifying theory and i mean maybe there is none but like uh being able to talk yeah. about particles mm -hmm. and 
large bodies, I don't know, planets, particles and planets, yeah. and everything in between, with one set of equations. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to we Not Yet a Doctor. We should have called our <laughs> podcast Particles and Planets. I think that was one of the, um, one of the ideas. Yeah, it was something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, physics is heading in that direction, mm-hmm. even if what I work on isn't necessarily di- directly related. But um, It's all incremental steps towards it. Right, that's kind of the goal of science, isn't it? To try and understand everything all at once. So I wanted to talk to her. So, okay, the question I asked was, what is going to come out of this research, essentially? And so we've had the the fundamental physics answer to that question. And um, mm-hmm. then she talked a bit about the technolo- technological advancements that come from mm. studying fundamental science. And also, uh, least but not last, uh, the improvement in technology. Because when we do, and this applies, I think, to all, no? Yeah. Experiment, also yeah. to experiments at CERN, no? Mm-hmm. We know today that, for example, we are, use, we are using uh, particle collisions to, uh, not these hadrons, yeah. Uh, to cancer, uh, no, to, 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 to cure yeah. the cancer, yeah. no, you know that there are uh, uh, hospitals yeah. in Italy, but also in the States, yeah. using uh, these particle accelerators, okay, for, uh, yeah. uh, also so in the UK. The, tec- uh, the, the technology ad- advancement uh, produced uh, by all these kind of experiments mm-hmm. is important and will for sure have impacts in other fields, as also has happened uh, with the experiments. I, I, I am, I, I don't know if all people agree, but clearly um, I, I, I am here now and I work in this field because when I was uh, 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 10 years old or even uh, uh, smaller, there was the first landing to the moon, no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I remember that in Italy it was night and uh, I was a walk and uh, I didn't watch the television, but directly the moon because I wanted to see the <laughs> And I remember my mom, Pia, come! <laughs> I don't want to see her! <laughs> I, want to see her. <laughs> I want to look at the moon. Oh. <laughs> and, okay, and so... Uh, uh, and, but the technological, uh, okay, it, it was something interesting, no? Yeah. Okay, for all people. Yeah. But if you uh, study all the improvement that landing, no? Yeah, brought absolutely. To us, no? From the, uh, the also reducing the dimensions of computers, no? The ability to communicate, yeah. no? From the, yeah, yeah from the moon to the earth, but I, I think it was a, a really a big improvement, you know? So something in which all the, uh, okay, the, 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 the money spent a lot was not only in the end useful just to land to the moon, but also to push, you know, the advancement in technology. Mm-hmm. I like that. So that's a really yeah. cute story. It's also like we're recording this on Sunday after on Thursday, mm-hmm. right? There was the um, Perseverance mm-hmm. landing, and mm-hmm. it's not the same as the first time humans walked on the moon, 
but it's still really exciting um mm -hmm. every time you make such a such an achievement mm -hmm. and like thinking about the excitement mm -hmm. that i felt watching perseverance landing and like feeling how much mm -hmm. that must be magnified to think of the first time you yeah, walked on the moon. totally i i remember i was watching the perseverance landing in the lab as i was running my experiments and i had it on and watching the stream and it was so exciting and yeah um yeah quick, to, to go back to what she was saying um we're curing cancer yep. using particle accelerators okay that's potentially another right. episode which would be uh very applied physics but yes um so uh we use proton beams in various different facilities to as a sort of alternative to radiotherapy oh cool interesting yeah like in two words the really good thing about proton beams as opposed to x-rays which is what standard radiotherapy uses is that protons will uh mm -hmm. travel through a lot of matter and then without depositing very much energy at all mm -hmm. and then deposit all of their energy in a really small amount of space like a few millimeters cool cool um whereas yeah. standard x-rays will just annihilate everything in their path which could be very damaging for anything mm -hmm. any normal tissue yeah yeah. One of the other things, I have mixed feelings about this uh, whole idea within science of like, obviously, that we have to justify cool science experiments by saying yeah. how we get really great technology out of it. Like, yeah. how we have to justify the moon landing or mm -hmm. looking at gravitational waves by yeah. saying, well, we, we get smaller computers and like cell phones that can fit in your pocket. And it's like, okay, yeah. But, like, isn't it just cool science? Like, can't we just do cool science? Yeah. Um, and I think, like, especially when you're writing grant applications and stuff, not that I've ever written a grant application, but, like, you often have to justify how this mm -hmm. will lead into a commercial technology. It's like, why well, yeah. Why is there such a push to commercialize when you, when you can just think about how it'll change our understanding of the universe and, yeah. and push humanity forward? I don't know. That's... Yeah. yeah, but I think, but I think the commercialization is just a bastardization of the fact that science we're doing should be benefiting humanity, True. right? Yeah, I guess. And especially yeah. science that we're publicly funding yeah. should be benefiting the public. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's a good point. And unfortunately, sure commercialization is like an easy readout for policymakers to understand. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean commercialization is the right way to go, but like, it's easy to it's easy yeah. to understand. And also, we live in a capitalist world where commercialization is like totally. a public good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and I recognize that. I think but. this is all like when I get to the final um, clip, this is all gonna kind of come around again. But mm -hmm. like, I I uh, I think that I'm not quite sure how well it came across in the in the small clips that I played. Yeah. But definitely in the interview, I think uh, Dr. Astone definitely gave like this, a very similar point of view from yours, Alistair, that like, mm -hmm. you do have to, like, it's very easy, it's, it's very useful and good and important to be able to say these things to the right people that, you know, look what we've achieved. But actually also fundamental science should be sort of done for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I hope, Sienna, that... Um, uh, in an ideal world, which obviously I, I understand we don't live in, in one, but I hope that in, in an ideal world, just knowledge itself would be enough uh, benefit to people that it would be considered worth funding. With that in mind, my final question to her 
was what was something that she wished that people understood better about her research. Mm. And I asked this question because I think it's a really interesting question to ask. Um, I wasn't, I had no idea how she was going to take it and I was interested to see um, whether she was going to take it as like a technical, like here's some physics topic that I wish that people understood better or um, sort of what we've been talking about, like why we do science. Mm -hmm. Um, and anyway, this is the, the answer that she gave, which is extremely Italian. First of all, that, uh, uh, okay, I am Italian. Yeah. Uh, okay, not that there is a famous uh, uh, part where he describes the travel of um, Ulisse, this, uh, okay, Greek, uh, you know, okay, mm -hmm. who brings, uh, okay, people to... To, to, to go, okay, to understand. And, and he says, fatti non foste per vivere come bruti, ma per seguire virtude e conoscenza. I think that people would like to understand that it's good to understand, because if you understand things, then probably you are a better person. Mm -hmm. Because understanding typically helps also in understanding better the other, no? In science, we are used not to discuss, to understand. And uh, it happens that uh, you discover that you are wrong. And another colleague or another group was right. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this is something which uh, I, I would like people to understand this method. No, it's not the scientific method of Galileo and the scientific method. No, in the sense that you, okay, uh, you need to, you have to try your, to do your best. Uh, understand, uh, discuss with others uh, without fighting, uh, mm -hmm. discuss, uh, admit that, uh, okay, you might be wrong, uh, and in the sense you go ahead. So um, uh, I would like people to understand that it is not a waste of money or a waste of time, because uh, also doing science, and in particular doing science, uh, all the humanity probably will become better. I don't know if I'm, I am too optimistic, but typically this is what I say no, to, to, yeah, to yeah. study and understand. I don't mean that you have to be a scientist. No, in, in all the works you have to study to improve. No, this, this does not depend on what you do. But if you try to do your job, your work at the best that you can, trying to understand how to improve what you do, how to improve your communication with others. I think that then in the end, this would be good for humanity, not only for the art. Yeah. Because well, I am convinced that there are other guys yeah. we never met, yeah. <laughs> but they are, okay? Yeah, surely. That's a great answer. <laughs> sweet. Yeah. yeah, so to try and give some context, the, the quote that she, that she quoted, was from I don't know if you guys have heard of Dante. Oh yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Dante's uh, Inferno. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Dante's Inferno, exactly. Um, <laughs> and it's this line. It goes, "Fatti non foste a vivere come bruti, ma per seguire virtute e conoscenza." The point is that you it translates essentially to, "You weren't made. You weren't created to live like animals. To live like." beasts but to pursue virtue and understanding mm. and i don't know i think it's a really nice 
yeah. um, way of thinking about mm-hmm. academia in general. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I like that she said that, like, if you further your understanding, you kind of will understand others better, too. Like, yeah, she took that in a really interesting direction. Uh, she did, didn't she? Yeah. Like, I think a lot of people would say, oh, I, you know, people misunderstand. Like, when I tell people I'm in chemistry, everyone goes, oh, like Breaking Bad. And I go, no, <laughs> nothing like Breaking Bad. Um, but she she took it in a much more, like, philosophical and... Yeah, I, I like that direction. Final comments before quiz. If you want to find us on the socials, we are at not yet a dr Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, email address phd32b at gmail.com. Let's blast through a quiz. Okay, all right. Buzzer sounds, please. Beep, beep. Nice. Just going with the classic roadrunner today. Okay. <laughs> um, mine's... <laughs> And that's me squishing and stretching as I feel gravitational oh waves. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. All right. Question one. What is a gravitational wave? What? Yes, I was it saying. is. It, it is the. It is produced by spinning large bodies in space and their asymmetry. <laughs> so, <laughs> the terror on your face. I think that's a reasonable. Half of an answer. Sienna, can you add anything? Um, I would add that they, like, I mean, it's, it's a wave, I guess, and it causes this sort of strain on other mass bodies that it encounters that causes them to deform. Yeah. Um, I think that's between that both part. of you. You get a full point. Okay. Half points each. Off <laughs> <laughs> um, to a good start. <laughs> okay. In... Which year were the first gravitational waves detected? Beep, beep. Go, Sienna. Yes, 2015. Very good. That's another whole point. I paid attention. Um, (laughs) Okay. um, Even through internet troubles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Heaviside, before Mm -hmm. Einstein, Mm -hmm. uh, hypothesized gravitational waves. What did he use the analogy of go Alistair he used the analogy of electromagnetism yeah Mm. very good okay um you are even yeah neck and neck one and a half points each (laughs) (laughs) but Um, Poincare used the analogy of Lawrence oh Lawrence equations oh Blomarexia I would just like to uh, but then but then Einstein but then Einstein went and found three waves uh, from his relative he theorized equation. Three. <laughs> just theorized three. Who can children? You get another point each. Are we just playing okay. who can summarize the episode <laughs> fast enough? <laughs> I guess so. Okay, what's the last question, Beth? Okay, what, all right. A last One... official refereed question. <laughs> um so of all of the things that gravitational waves could teach us about the universe, what are you most excited to see? Beep beep. Go, Sienna. I'm, I think it's most exciting to uh, think about the possibility of a world where we discover the graviton, which carries the gravitational wave, because that kind of, that really does create this sort of beautiful parallel between what we know about light, photons, and light waves, I guess. Yeah. And then gravity. Okay. I like that whoop, answer. Whoop. That's a very good answer. Go, Alistair. I can't wait to look at pretty pictures from space agencies of photos that are light, infrared, X-ray, gravitational ray, neutrino, like all these layered together. 
and just yeah. see how beautiful the universe is in all of its complexity. Aww. Also, a very good answer, and um, I'm sorry, guys, you both win. <laughs> Yay! Yay! We, we all win, the knowledge of science. <laughs> Um, so that is it for today. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Astoni for... Thank you very much to Dr. Astoni for her interview. Thanks also to Alison, who um, wrote the fantastic music that you are presumably now listening to. As we fade out, I am Beth. I am Alistair. And I'm Sienna. <laughs>